Hello and welcome to the Private Capital Podcast. I'm Joe Riley. We are speaking today with Chris Miller, the author of the international best-selling Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Chris Miller is an assistant professor of international history at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, where he teaches on U.S.-Russian relations. He also serves as the Gene Kirkpatrick Visiting Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, Eurasia Director at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and as a director at Greenmantle, a New York and London-based macroeconomic and geopolitical consultancy. He is the author of three previous books, Putinomics, The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, and We Shall Be Masters. He received a PhD in history from Yale University and a BA in history from Harvard. We talk about the worst case scenario if TSMC went offline, the race for technology in the collapse of the Soviet Union, the limits of Moore's Law, and why Morris Chang, the founder of TSMC, should be more well known. I'd like to start with a bit of an unusual question, but one that might be a good intro to today's topic. Do you think Reagan's SDI or Star Wars initiative helped to end the Cold War? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, on the one hand, as I argue in Chip War, the key technological trends that led the U.S. military to acquire long-range precision strike capabilities, the types of sensors and communications technologies needed to deploy them were actually really invested in the 1970s under Jimmy Carter in particular, as when a lot of the, the key um, decisions were made to in invest in some of these new systems, but then they were ramped up under Reagan in a big way. And so al although the technological investments were made under Carter, the deployments happened under Reagan. And so I, I do think the, the Reagan defense buildup in general had a major impact on the Soviets at the end of the Cold War. SDI in particular, I think it's harder to have a sort of confident view because it's difficult to differentiate the Soviet interpretation of SDI versus the Soviet interpretation of the rest of the defense buildup. Uh, but in aggregate, I, I concluded this research thinking that it was it was really highly likely that that the defense buildup in the 1980s did impact Soviet decision making in a major way. Not only did decision making, but was it enough of a stressor on the? I think I think it wasn't on its own enough of a stressor on the economy, but it, it made. Soviet leadership, both military and civilian, worried about future trajectories. I think they could have, if they'd wanted to, sustained the system for another half decade or decade, but they were looking at the trend lines of slowing Soviet growth, of a need for rising defense expenditure, of the reality that even with rising defense expenditure, they were not going to be able to keep technological parity with the US, and the trend lines just didn't look viable over a longer run. And so it's not that the the defense buildup drove the Soviets to bankruptcy per se, but that in order to avoid even bigger, longer run problems, they, they changed tack under Gorbachev and tried something different, which ended up not working very well for them either. But it, it was a reasonable decision at that point to change tack because the trajectory just looked so bad. I think it's an interesting parallel because they were so effectively cut off from the Western world. They had to develop their own technology. And I'm just trying to look for parallels to today's situation, which is very different. Yeah, it's different in some ways, but it is similar in others. I think China is increasingly going to be cut off and already is from certain types of advanced technologies. It's really integrated in some ways, but when it comes to advanced semiconductors, increasingly, I think AI research, advanced biotech research, China is going to be more cut off than it's been in decades. 
I think also we see the Chinese government intervening much more directly in its tech sector than it has in the last couple of decades. And I think that is not exactly Soviet style, is in injecting a lot of non-market incentives into the industry, which I think the Soviet experience shows can be quite dangerous for ways that firms invest and uh, for the ways that uh, individuals focus their energy. And so I think the, the irony is that Xi's China is becoming more Soviet over time, even though he's fixated on the Soviet collapse, desperately trying to avoid it. But the steps he's taking to avoid it, centralizing the economy and escalating confrontation with the US is actually pushing China more in that direction. Do we have a good historical parallel from any point in history where two large, deeply intertwined economies become antagonists that might help us think through this? Do have We do have some parallels. They're not inspiring ones. If you look, for example, at Britain and Germany before World War II, they were deeply intertwined. Lots of foreign investment in both directions, lots of trade in both directions, and yet that didn't guarantee peace at all. And so that, that's a worrisome analogy for where we are today. Now, that decoupling, if you will, helped, happened rapidly. It, it happened in summer of 1914 as the war was beginning, whereas now if you look at US-China relations and, and China's trade with a lot of other advanced economies, Japan, Korea, Europe, with a, a, I think a longer run process of advanced economies trying to disentangle themselves from certain types of trade and investment with China. And I think the goal from the US side, if I understand and aggregate US goals correctly, is not to have a complete decoupling, but to have a partial decoupling in a way that prevents China from accessing advanced technology, but still keeps China's labor force open to manufacturing low-end, low-tech goods. And the question is, well, China tolerate that type of equilibrium because it's obviously much less good for China than it is for advanced economies. The Cold War was mostly about ideology and influence, but it did have a real threat behind it. If we're talking about a new Cold War, then I'm curious if old-fashioned things like deterrence theory are coming into play. Where do nuclear weapons fit into this from a negotiating standpoint, or are they simply in the background? I think they are increasingly less in the background, because if you think of Taiwan escalation scenarios, the reason that China's building up its nuclear arsenal right now is because when China thinks about the way it would play a Taiwan scenario, it would do so by threatening nuclear use early against the US, against Japan, and an effort to deter both of those countries from coming to Taiwan's aid. And I think the lesson of the, one of the lessons, at least of the Russia-Ukraine war is that nuclear threats work. Russia has threatened nuclear escalation from the outset. And President Biden has been very open in explaining that the US will not get involved precisely because it's afraid of Russia's nuclear threats. And so if you're China looking at the way Putin's nuclear threats have deterred the US from getting more deeply involved in Ukraine, I think you quite naturally say that's a principle I'd like to apply in the Asia-Pacific region as well. And I think if there is any sort of crisis over Taiwan, we should expect China to make nuclear threats very early in that crisis in an effort to deter to the US. And I think those threats have been made against Guam, made against Hawaii, and also Japan as well, because US bases in Japan would be critical to any effort to help Taiwan in case of a crisis. How serious do you think that is? Do we get a Cuban missile crisis level yeah. threat? You're very much, you've mentioned before, but you think a blockade is very likely. I think it's certainly very possible. And if I were China, a blockade, I think, has a lot of benefits that a sort of full-on D-Day style attack doesn't. You know, if China launches D-Day version two, I think it's pretty clear that the US would come to Taiwan's aid. And I think China knows that. And that makes 
that strategy less appealing because optimal situation for China is that it takes on Taiwan one-on-one, in which case it's got a much, much better chance of prevailing. If the US gets involved, China's probabilities of winning decline dramatically. And that's why I think China's got every incentive to try to start at least below the threshold of what would trigger US response. And I do worry if China launched a blockade of Taiwan or a partial blockade, they'd call it a quarantine, just like President Kennedy did when he, quote unquote, quarantined Cuba, of course, there's no real difference in international law, the same thing. And you can already begin to imagine how China would, I like to think of SARS-CoV-3 found in Taiwan, China implements phytosanitary protective measures with its Navy to quarantine the virus in Taiwan. You can spin up stories that China would use to justify it. And once you had a partial blockade in place, I think the US would find it very hard to break it because the only way you'd break it is by taking really escalatory steps, threatening to use force and having to do so credibly enough to get China to back down. And so I do worry that if China were to impose a partial blockade or a full blockade, we would struggle to find ways to break the blockade. And we would not want to be in the position of shooting first. But unless you're willing to shoot first, I think it's hard to be confident you'd have any chance of forcing the Chinese to back down. How does that put the squeeze on Japan and South Korea and some of the other Asian tigers? Obviously, from an economic perspective, there's huge pressure if something like that happened. Well, it's a huge issue, both because of semiconductor implications. If China was able to control access to the chips produced in TSMC, it would have profound implications for the balance of technological and economic power in the world. But also because Taiwan sits right along the most used trade routes that connect Asia. If you want to ship goods from Southeast Asia to Japan or Southeast Asia to Korea, Taiwan is right in the middle of that. And right now, China is to a substantial extent hemmed in by the fact that the islands south of Japan through Okinawa and then Guam and then the Northern Philippines are all places where the U.S. has standing bases or would have access in a conflict. And if China takes Taiwan, suddenly that map looks very different and China would have a a base from which to project power both into Southeast Asia and further into the Western Pacific. So all of the trade routes between these absolutely critical economies would be under much greater threat as a result. I'd love to ask a couple of process questions because there's so many great stories in this book. I'm interested in how you handled all the interviews How did you find a thread to weave this really complicated story together? I started by just doing interviews and reading. I read every document I could find on the history of the industry, and I did well over 100 interviews over the course of the research. And as I did those interviews, it became clear that both there was a critical story to tell about how the businesses and technology had developed, the shift from a an integrated model to a fabulous foundry model, the globalization of the industry, offshoring to Taiwan and Korea and elsewhere. But also that politics couldn't be separated from that. And in particular, military power was a central driver and shaper of the industry from the earliest day. And that was certainly true in the 60s when it was the space race, the missile race driving the chip industry. But it's also increasingly obviously true today when both the US government, the Chinese government, the Japanese governments, and many others are trying to reshape the industry so it suits their geopolitical and military needs. You got pretty deep into this subject. How does an author come up for air and see if their insights actually resonate before publication? It's a rapidly changing story. Yeah, it's it's a hard question because on on the one hand, you want to be as as deep as possible to make sure you're getting the details exactly right. But also the challenge then is to connect it to these bigger themes and understand the implications. I found myself trying to toggle between these two different ways of thinking. On the one hand, the deep focus, on the other hand, the the 30,000 foot view. And it was a challenge. I think the one thing that made it easier in this book is because it's a very international story from Texas and California to the Netherlands to 
Japan, Taiwan, China, you're forced to look at a big picture because you're covering a lot of different territory on the map. And that made it helpful to think about the global implications as well as implications for specific types of technology or specific firms. Did you run these ideas by people at Fletcher or at the CFR? I did, yeah. I spent a lot of time running different chapters by experts in different fields. So the China chapters ran by China experts and so on. And that was important because I'd spent a fair amount of time engaging with all of the countries involved in this story to some extent, but no one is an expert in, in, in Korea and the Netherlands and the United States and other countries simultaneously. And so it was really critical to actually to get from people who'd spent a lot of time in, in the geographies themselves and also in, in different segments of the industry, because I felt like by the end of the work, I'd gotten a really good sense at a broad level of all the different segments of the chip industry. But there are so many different, really unique subsegments of the industry that even in the chip industry, no one is a, an expert in everything. And so you really do need to sense check the conclusions with people who are deep in the weeds of different geographies or different subsegments of the industry. I think a good way to untangle this web is to take a simple example and leaving aside a blockade or an invasion, if a natural disaster took out the TSMC plant for at least a year, how would that unravel globally? And how long do you think it would take to recover? Well, I think it would be disastrous for the global economy. The entire world depends on TSMC's chips. They produce 90% of the world's most advanced processors. And Taiwan produces over a third of the new comp computing power the world adds each year. And that goes not only into smartphones and PCs, but also into all manner of consumer devices. I think it'd be difficult to make many smartphones anywhere in the world. The year after TSMC or Taiwan was knocked offline, PC production would fall at least by a third. Data center rollouts would grind to a halt. Telecoms infrastructure would be very difficult to expand because almost every cell phone tower has chips from Taiwan in it. And then when you look at dishwashers and microwaves and automobiles, they have lots of non-sophisticated chips, but many of those chips are also made in Taiwan. And although they can be replaced over time, they can't be replaced quickly. That's what we found out during the chip shortage of the last couple of years is that it's not easy to ramp up supply, which is why in certain segments of the auto market, we're still facing some delays and shortages two years on because supply just takes a very long time to ramp up. And the shortages of the last couple of years happened amid growing chip supply globally. Just demand grew faster than supply. And so if we would envision a scenario in which supply shrink uh, by a third for processor chips, the impact would be catastrophic. And if you think about autos, a typical car will have a thousand chips inside. And so for almost every car, there's at least one chip made in Taiwan, often a dozen or a hundred. And replacing those would just take a very long time. You'd have to redesign cars or you'd have to find alternative sources of supply, but there wouldn't really be any alternative sources because the entire world would be struggling to get access to the chips they needed. And that's why this is a scenario that would be the worst manufacturing crisis since 1929. Is there any orthogonal play here? Is there a viable secondary market in chips? There, there is a secondary market in certain types of chips, but it's not very broad because of the cost of getting chips out of There's not much chip recycling. Once a chip's glued into an iPhone, it's very rarely taken out of it. Just the costs involved are too high and the technology moves forward. And so for many chips, if you've got a two or three or four year old one, you could make an old smartphone with a two or three or four year old smartphone chip, but people don't want that. People want the cutting edge. And so that's why there's not much chip recycling that happens a little bit, but that's not nearly as big as you might think. Morris Chang versus Steve Jobs. Who's number one? I think it's clear that a lot of people know Steve Jobs and revere him as a visionary. Very few people know Morris Chang, and I think more ought to know him. Every single American, every single listener of this podcast will rely on 
dozens of his company's products daily, although they never produced or they've never purchased one of them. Your smartphone, in many cases, your PC, and certainly all of the data center infrastructure you rely on. Whenever you turn on your phone or PC today, you're relying on data centers distributed across the country and the world, and all those data centers have TSMC chips inside. We can't live in a modern society the lives that we take for granted without TSMC chips. But what about them as entrepreneurs? I think I think they, they're playing in different markets. Morris Chang was playing in a market for component parts that would end up in consumer goods. And so he, he was never someone who was able to envision new products like Steve Jobs was, because Steve Jobs had to sell products directly to consumers and needed to think about what consumers wanted to buy. But Morris Chang understood the supply chains far better understood that companies didn't want to have to deal with the really complex and messy business and capital intensive business of chip manufacturing and understood guts of the electronics industry in a way that no one else did. And that's why he was able to innovate with his business model, creating a business that was the first of its kind in terms of only doing manufacturing, uh, never doing chip design. And that allowed him to manufacture for many different customers, many different chip designers, grow enormously and reap economies of scale and also technological improvements that stemmed from that vast scale. And that's why TSMC today is both the world's largest and the world's most advanced manufacturer of processor chips. Did you get any sense of how his personality played into that? I know you got to meet him. He's an intense person. All of his colleagues from the 1950s onwards talk about his tenacity, his fixation on efficiency. He was he was often said and from colleagues that worked with him in the 50s, 60s, and 70s to have had a sort of intuitive sense of how to find efficiencies in the manufacturing processes that he was supervising. And so he's really an expert when it came to making manufacturing efficient. And for the chip industry today, which produces these ultra precise chips with 15 billion transistors on it today, each one of them, the size of a virus, the manufacturing involved is just mind-bogglingly complex. And Morris Chang, I think more than anyone else, had the ability to process improvements that would make it technologically more capable while simultaneously finding efficiencies that would drive down the cost and make it economically viable to sell such complex products by the millions and millions. What happened to Intel? Is it oversimplifying to say that they dropped the ball with the iPhone or is it just classic disruption theory? I think it's not just the fact that they dropped the ball with the iPhone, although that was part of the a big part of the challenge they faced. I think that the bigger issue behind that mistake and several others was that Intel was too profitable and too successful for too long. And in the 2000s, and especially in the 2010s, it sat on its laurels. It benefited from an almost monopolistic position in the two key markets of PC chips and data center chips that it focused on. And these were immensely profitable businesses that, that were so profitable that the leadership felt they didn't have to invest in new businesses and even that it was dangerous to do so because it would drive down margins. And one of the things I was struck by in interviewing Intel employees from the 2010s is the extent to which they repeatedly talked about new ideas that they had, both new technologies and new businesses that were tested internally, seemed promising, but were ultimately rejected by the leadership because they were not going to be nearly as profitable as the two existing business lines in the short run. And so Intel for a decade, didn't really do the investment it needed in new products. And today, as its two core businesses of selling chips for PCs and data centers are slowing dramatically. It's reaping the costs of that failure to invest. And I think the new CEO, Pat Gelsinger, realizes very clearly the problem that Intel faces and I think is doing a lot to try to turn the company around. But he inherited the company after a decade of mismanagement. There's a lot of issues that he has to fix. So Moore's Law is indeed slowing down but can new materials and 3D and chiplets bring it back up to speed? Yeah, I'm bullish when it comes to the long run trajectory. I think 
There's so much innovation happening in each of the spheres you mentioned. Chiplets, the ability to combine different chips in different ways, 3D stacking of transistors, which is coming in just a year or two. There's all sorts of new research on chip design, which is able to produce more computing capabilities with the same number of transistors on a chip that I think, although Moore's law is traditionally defined, is indeed slowing. I think, in, in, in fact, the rate of innovation is not slowing and the rate of practical computing power produced per chip is still improving at a, a very impressive clip. I'm skeptical of anyone who says Moore's law is dead. It's certainly shifting, but I don't think that means the rate of improvement is, is really slowing down. So the CHIPS Act is impressive, but how much does it really cost to build a bleeding edge foundry? Well, it costs around 20 or $25 billion. They're the most expensive factories in human history. And the complexity involved is really mind-boggling in terms of the machinery that needs to be purchased, which we haven't discussed, but we could. And the CHIPS Act is going to allocate around $52 billion for chip making, of which $40 billion will go towards incentives to manufacture more in the US. So it's going to have an impact on the number of facilities built in the US. But I think it remains to be seen how big the impact is. And part of the task the Commerce Department, which is implementing the CHIPS Act, faces right now is to design the program in a way to get the most new manufacturing capabilities per dollar spent. And they've got to be creative in doing that because the dollar values they've got to work with are large, but not massive when you compare it to the amount of capex the industry does globally each year. The man curve for chips has been boom and bust. The history of the chip industry has been rather resilient, actually. Do you think it's possible that we'll be here in five years talking about a chip glut? I think that the industry has always been very cyclical. It's had painful downswings on a regular basis and then very profitable upswings. And so that that's coincided with gluts and with shortages. I think we're currently in a, a period, actually, that certain segments of the industry are already facing gluts. And memory chips, for example. You've got oversupply right now because demand for consumer devices has slowed as the economies slowed. I think in other parts of the industry, though, demand is being driven upwards by secular trends rather than cyclical trends. In autos, for example, chip content is just growing dramatically beyond just cyclical factors. Data center growth, I think, is going to be a key structural driver as well. And so I I think that we're going to be using more chips as a share of GDP in 10 years' time than we are today because the demand for computing across all different aspects of society is going to keep increasing. So many developments in the chip situation every day. What do you think we should keep an eye out for that would indicate real change in this space? I think I'd say two things to that. The first, the real risk, huge gargantuan downside risk is a Chinese attack on Taiwan which would be so disastrous economically, it's hard even to think through. So that's number one. And I think it's, although it's hard to think through because the consequences are so large, we've got to keep it in mind because precisely because the impact would be so dramatic. I think the other big question right now is Intel, because Intel's fate goes far beyond just the future of one company. If it succeeds in building a foundry business that could compete with TSMC, it would reshape the industry. And so I think I think focusing on Intel's trajectory over the next several years will be critical. And I think the company's got a, a hard couple of years ahead of it, but they've also got a plan which, if successful, would really dramatically reshape the industry in terms of the geography of production, but also in terms of the competitive landscape. Right now, TSMC is practically a monopoly when it comes to making advanced chips. And if Intel could break into that in a big way, that would have dramatic implications for the rest of the industry. The name of the book is Chip War. The author is Chris Miller. Thank you for your insights today, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and take a minute to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it.